been going through the book of John, and we've been looking at the seven signs of Christ in the book of John, in the first 11 chapters of the book of John. And what we've noticed about these signs is, is that they are miracles that Jesus did, but not just miracles. These are signs that, these are miracles that he described as, John described as a sign. And when there's a sign in the book of John, it's a sign that meaning this, two, it's saying two things um, about Christ. It's about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And um, what we see here is in the first 11 chapters of the book of John, Christ is explaining and portraying who he is as a person. Chapter 11 to the end of the book to chapter 21 of the book of John, we see that Christ is now, he is portraying and focusing on what he came to do, and that was to finish the work of our salvation. And so here, this is the last sign and at this sign, we see there's a pivot in the book of, of John. There's a change. There's a, there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a new there's a new movement. There's something that's changing in the book of John where it's now no longer focusing on Christ, but now on what he's come to do. And, and it's really focusing and really showing what the power of what Christ came to do. And so I want to look at that together with you um, this morning. And I want to look at two things in this chapter um, or in these verses that, that Pastor Adam just read. Uh, number one, who he is as a person to Martha and Mary and Lazarus. These three people were very dear to him. They were his friends. And yes, Jesus had close friends. That's kind of hard to think because I think a lot of people think that Jesus was a religious figure, a religious man that kind of was just a loner, like a prophet or like a John the Baptist, but he had friends. Uh, just like today in Christian leadership, it's really important that leaders have friends. Sometimes, well, oftentimes I talk to pastors in the woodlands and I, I'm blessed to know a lot of them. And we pray for them and they pray for ever grace. And a lot of times, sometimes I'll notice that um, these leaders don't really have a lot of friends. And I think that's not good because... Uh, sometimes pastors and leaders fail, they fall down because there's just no one in their circles that they can talk to or pray with. And so Jesus had friends. He had surrounded himself with men and women that really loved him and that followed him. And there were people that followed him also that were not his friends, such as Judas Iscariot. The last week of Christ's life, the last seven days, Jesus is in Bethany, which is just two miles from the, from the temple. And during the day, Jesus would go in and into Jerusalem and he would do miracles. He would preach. There would be incredible things with his disciples. And then he'd go back home to, he'd walk back home two miles with all of his disciples and they'd go to Martha, Mary and Lazarus's house. And these are really small houses, very small. And they'd all crash there for the night. And then the next morning he'd get up and do it again. And so Martha, Mary and Lazarus were very dear friends of Jesus. And so, um, we know that Jesus truly loved Lazarus and Lazarus was ill, he was sick. And we read in the scripture that when he was sick, Jesus tarried, meaning he got busy with something else. And as he tarried, um, Lazarus, the one, when they came to him, Lazarus, the one you love is ill. And then they said, Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus makes his way to Bethany to the funeral of Lazarus. And he's coming on a scene, and I don't know if you've been to, I'm sure you've been to funerals, 
Uh, this was a funeral that was um, very heartbreaking because number one, Lazarus died. People loved him. And number two, uh, this is a man that they thought Jesus would be there for sure to make sure he doesn't die and that he's not. And so Jesus here tarries. And he's not there because he wants to be flippant or disrespectful to his friend Lazarus. He has a deeper, more expedient thing he wants to show his dearest friends. And this sign, this miracle here of Lazarus being risen from the dead, raised from the dead, resuscitated, is the climax of all of the miracles that we read here in the book of John. And so number one, we see in this that we see who he is as a person. And number two, the power of what he came to do. So let's look at, what, let's look at the first point, who he is. It's interesting to note that as Jesus comes on the scene, there's just, it's just a ruin. There's, there's broken people. People are weeping. It's, people are discouraged. People are just very disappointed that Jesus didn't come on time. They're maybe disillusioned or maybe they feel um, angry or saddened, understandably, because Jesus wasn't there. And so what happens is that Martha comes out first to meet Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died, right? Right? And then Mary comes out and says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, you could have done something and he wouldn't have died. Yet the way Jesus talks to Martha and the way that Jesus talks to Mary, who both said the same thing in the same situation, he says in completely, he says completely different things to them. Why? Because he understands their capacity. He understands what they need, what they, what they need to hear. And I wanna say something about communication, all communication all communication, successful communication, good communication, godly communication, is based on capacity. What the hearer has the capacity to hear. Jesus said to his disciples, there's many things I would like to say to you that I need to say to you, but you don't have the capacity for it right now. Jesus understood that if he said the thing to Mary that he said to Martha, it would have crushed Mary. And if he said the thing to Martha, if he did the thing to Martha that he did with Mary, she wouldn't understand it. Jesus knows he's a wonderful counselor. He knows exactly what to say to us, to you, and when to say it and how to say it and what not to say. Martha comes and says, Mar Martha's full of sorrow. We know that Martha was a, was, a, was a woman, probably, you know, that if you've been to the Middle East, you probably know this type of a person. She was maybe anxious. She was very busy about the house, wanting to make sure everything was perfect for the Lord and uh, everything that was just so, and, and she was kind of anxious. She was um, a bit driven, I think, maybe sometimes, um, maybe accusatory, maybe, or misunderstanding in the way that she would talk to the Lord. And what, is the, what does Jesus say to Martha? He says, Martha, I'm not just here to try to fix a situation, I am. I, he says, I don't even have, I'm not even going to tell you that I have the power to change the situation. Because I think me, myself, I'm the kind of person that comes into, and I see a crisis and I want to fix that. Maybe most men are that way. Any men in this room that are not fixers? I don't know. No. Okay, I'm the only one here. So I'm a guy, I, when I come into a circumstance, I want to I find a solution. I want to apply some, some ideas and I want to just fix the situation. Or if I can't fix the situation, I want to be optimistic. You know what? It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be fine, right? And don't worry, it's all gonna be great. And, and kind of just project this optimism and that doesn't help Martha either. 
Jesus comes in and says, I'm not late. I'm never late. I'm eternal. And I am the resurrection and I am the life. Do you believe this, Martha? Wow. It's a little bit like, Jesus, are you sure you want to talk like that? And it's a funeral. And Martha's pretty, pretty devastated. Jesus knew what Martha could handle. And Jesus kind of goes against the flow of her sorrow, kind of pushes back. And says, you know, like, I am the resurrection and the life. You live in three, Jesus is saying, you live in, in a three-dimensional time and space. I don't. For me, any time, he is saying, my father's timing is perfect. And he said this, uh, he says in another, another account of this in the Gospels, it said that Jesus had allowed this, that Jesus had something that he was going to show, he was going to show that the works of God would be revealed. Uh, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 22 right? Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then, and he's saying to Martha, I'm 100% God. And we we see something really incredible about Christ and the person of Christ, that he's 100% God. That he's not, there's, he's not 98% or 50-50, 50% God, 50% man. He's 100% God. Yet at the same time, and this in theology is called the hypostatic union, that sounds like a plumbing term, but it's not. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, he's 100% God and 100% man. And he comes to Mary and, and we see something about his conversation with Mary that is so human. It's so personable. And I love this about Christ. And I think it is so sad so many times in Christian circles, we miss this. We get so wrapped up in programs and impressions and and, and we miss Christ, and Christ is the only one that can change a person's life. Not a great message, not a great worship, and we really strive for that, but really it's Christ that changes a person's life. And for me, just if you're new here, how do I define success as a, as a pastor? I define it this way. Um, if we see a, a life changed, I know we've hit the target. If we see someone that didn't believe in God before, that now believes in Jesus Christ and walks with him, or has had victory over something in their life, then I feel like we've, we've hit the target and we've succeeded. That's what I, as a church at Evergrace, that's what really I want personally as, a, as your pastor to strive to do. That's what my, my goal is. And number two is that if we, can, if we can teach people how to preach Christ, how to reach, the, reach their neighborhoods, and this is already a different topic and I don't want to get into this, but, but if we can understand who Jesus is and really focus on him and him alone, then I think that we're doing, the, we're doing the right thing in a church. Not here to talk about politics or social issues or economy. These are things that can be corrected if the church does its job, right? Sometimes I think we're blaming politicians and we're blaming people and it's really, we need to understand that the, minute, that the, that the, that the, the work of the church is really to preach Christ. And so we, we see here that Jesus to Martha is 100% God. And then he comes to Mary, Mary comes to him, says the exact same thing. And what does Jesus do? He says nothing. Wow, he says nothing. But what does he do? He, he comes in. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't succumb to the urge to say, hey Mary, don't cry, because in 10 minutes, everyone here and everything's gonna change and everyone here will be, it'll be a party, because your brother will be alive again. He doesn't have that, he doesn't have the urge to say, to Mary what the plan is, to, to cheer her up. But he enters in, look at this, look at this with me, okay? Just focus because 
I only got you for like another 20, 25 minutes, okay? He, he, he enters in to the uncomfortable emotional situation. Jesus comes in and he is, he is present in the moment. And what does he do? He weeps with Mary. I think that sometimes in our Christianity we enter into this kind of stoicism. Stoicism is this kind of thinking where, you know what, just tough it out. Death is inevitable. What are you gonna do? It is what it is. Um, don't get over emotional about things. Just get the work done, do it. And that's the kind of culture I grew up in in the Northeast of the United States. Jesus comes in and, he, and he's present at that moment and he weeps with Mary. I just, sometimes people just need tears, right? The ministry of tears. And that's not something that we can force to happen. But it's something that Jesus has touched. It says he's groaning in his spirit. He is, he is in the motion, he's in the movement of Mary's sorrow. I remember when I was living in Ukraine with my wife, we were, we were doing church planning there. And I remember um, we had a guest come to speak, do a weekend like we're gonna have a pastor's belly. We had a pastor come and he spent the weekend with us and I took him to the airport. And the airport at the time in, in, in Ukraine, that was this, it looked like a bus station. It was probably no larger than this room. And this is where everybody, you know, you had to check in over there. You had like this, you know, people's bags were checked in there. Like, and then over here, you're getting your tickets. And over there, you're just waiting. And that's the door you go out to the airplane. And you'd walk to your plane. And I remember we were just sitting there. And, and, um, um, and, and our guest, he goes through the door. So I start walking out. And I remember as I'm walking out, um, there's a little bit of a, disruption and there was like some gasps and and I looked back and there was a kind of a crowd of people that were kind of forming around uh, an older man and an older woman that were in the back and they're all kind of looking and and um, I understood I could see someone laying on the floor I understood that someone had collapsed and so I I waited and and I'm thinking um, you know I'm thinking what what's happening here and then people kind of just a few seconds later People kind of just started backing up a little bit and leaving. And there was this woman standing there, I mean, crouched over, and her husband of 50 years was laying on the floor. He had a massive heart attack, and he was gone before he hit the floor. And she was just sitting there, and I just remember the look on her face, this, this shock, this unbelief, this surreal moment. And I saw her, and of course, I was deeply touched. And being a pastor and just being someone that um, was there present and I could just feel kind of what she was going through and I, I, went, I went over there and I, I was 20, maybe 29 at the time and uh, just had this thought like, what do I say, what do I do? What do? Is there something I should say or hand her my card or something? And I remember the Lord just gave me this picture of when Job lost it all and his friends gathered around him and they didn't say anything for seven days and they just were there. And I had that thought and I thought, I thought that was the Holy Spirit. And so I just went over to her and she was kind of kneeling and I put my arm on her shoulder and I just, I just sat there with her and didn't say anything. It just was present. And she's just, she's starting to grieve and it was just so heartbreaking. And I remember the awkwardness that people had. People didn't know what to do. It's just so awkward. People don't know what to do with death. They're just like, this is so awkward. What do we say? What do we do? And people just kind of walking away. Other people are trying to give her a glass of water or, hey, it's going to be okay. You know, and you could just see the cycles of what people would say when they don't know what to say. 
And the Lord just said, be quiet, be present, and just put your hand on her shoulder. And, and she, she didn't even hear what people were saying. I don't think she even knew I was there. And, and an ambulance had been called. And in Ukraine at the time, and still probably is, that part of the world, you know, the, the, the medical help is not as, you know, you could be waiting 45 minutes to an hour for an ambulance to show up. And so we waited for 45 minutes and an ambulance came and he was gone. And they picked him up, they put him in the car. And she just kind of was like following him. And, and I said to her, I said to her, I said, I'm here, I'm a pastor. If there's anything I can do for you, please call me. And I did give her my card. And she said, thank you. And then she got into the ambulance. And I remember thinking, um, just noticing that people that, you know, live a shallow life that are not acquainted with the fact that we're eternal beings, that we're eternal, that we will go somewhere for eternity, uh, that they themselves were not settled about eternity. They themselves didn't know what to say or do, and it was awkward for them. And I remember thinking, this is what Jesus probably did with Mary. He just went over there, wept with her, and was present. And we see two things about this. Number one, we see he's a wonderful counselor. He's wise. He knew when to confront, and he knew when just to weep with people. Um, Jesus is infinitely high, and he's infinitely low in the spectrum of his ability to comfort and to counsel. He in, not only does he, is he high and he's low, but he, he, he inhabits the entire spectrum of counsel. And there's a beautiful verse in, in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, which I love this. We do not have a high priest that is not touched with our infirmity. Okay, that's beautiful. He was touched. He was touched with our infirmity, with our weakness, with our brokenness. He was touched by it. He was touched by the world of sin. He was touched by temptation. Yes, Jesus was tempted. Temptation that came at Jesus. The devil was not tempting an old sin nature like we have in Jesus, but he was tempting Jesus with the same temptation that Adam and Eve have. Adam and Eve lived in a garden in Utopia, but they lived in a state of naivety, not a state of holiness. They lived in a state of naivety. They were naive. They had no, they had no understanding of what holiness was. And, it, and before they sinned, Adam and Eve were living in a process of making decisions with God where they were growing in their character and understanding uh, the holiness of God. And they were growing in that, but yet something interrupted them. And we know the story that the, that the serpent came and deceived Eve. Jesus had the same kind of temptation. If we can look at it like this, Jesus was in a, in, a, in a desert land. He was in a very difficult place in, in Matthew chapter four. He was hungry. There was rocks around him. There was, no, there was no comfort, yet Adam and Eve, and there was no woman. There was no companion for Jesus. And then here at Adam and Eve, they were in a garden. They were in Utopia, and they were faced with the same temptations, and they failed. Jesus was, was faced with the same temptations, and Jesus did not fail. He was a, he's a priest that can be touched with our temptations. And when we go in like Matthew chapter six, I want you to understand this, that when, Jesus, when God says, your father knows what you need, that's Matthew chapter six, it's a Greek word there that explains that God has seen and experienced what you need. How? Through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the God man. He is fully man, and as a man, he fully experienced every temptation. I mean, in the, Roman, in the Roman culture, you think our culture is pretty perverse? It was worse. The Corinthian church, I mean, the culture of Rome was so perverse, and, and, the, and the lifestyle that was going on during these times, these things Jesus saw and hit Jesus yet without sin. Yet without sin. 
yet without sin. And that's amazing because why did Jesus, why did Jesus do that? So that we would live without sin? No. He said, I am qualified to be your high priest. I understand the temptation. I understand the disappointments. I understand the unbelief. I understand Mary's sorrow. I understand Martha's frustration. And there's no condemnation because I'm taking all of that to the cross. Don't you love that? That's the only way that we get over sin, guys. We don't get over sin by intentionally trying harder and harder and harder. That's part of the process, making a decision. But power over sin happens in our life. When we understand, when we say in Romans chapter seven, woe is me, I'm a man that's wretched and undone, what a wreck I am, I'm such a mess. And I live in a wrecked world and this whole world in Romans chapter eight is crying out for the manifestation of the sons of God, for, for the kingdom of God to come. And yet I'm so broken, Paul, Paul the five-star apostle in general in the kingdom of God saying, I'm a wreck, I'm a murderer, <laughs> I killed the church of God, right? I was, I, was, I, was, I was killing people, Jesus, uh, uh, Paul said, and, and he said, I'm a wreck in Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter eight, verse one, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's beautiful today because we have a high priest that was touched, and I love that. He was touched by Mary, he was touched by Martha, yet he wasn't corrupted and he wasn't infected by their negativity or their unbelief. And it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. He loves his family. Um, and he's coming to them out of love and out of patience. And he comes to them and he's there to reorder their love. I want to take a minute and explain what that means. The problem that we have as human beings is that we love the wrong thing. Our love is out of order. Augustine said this. Our love is out of order. Love, we love the wrong things at the wrong time in the wrong order. We love things that we, we love things that have this place where, where it really shouldn't have the top priority. Anything that we love out, anything that we love more than God, and this is an important point I want to say. Anything that you and I love more than God is going to, it's going to be something that we crush. What, is I, what do I mean by that? You know, a mother can truly love their child, but if, if, if a mother loves their child more than they love God, then we're going to smother that child. We're gonna, we're gonna put a pressure on that child of expectation that that child can never, ever, ever meet. And I think we live living here in the woodlands, in the woodlands area, we're in the backyard of the woodlands. We see this all the time. We see the incredible expectation that people have on teenagers. And I was talking to a teen yesterday, I think 14 years old, and they are just, they're on anxiety medication, antidepressants, because the expectations on them is that they would be getting a GPS, uh, a GPA that would be 4.0 so that they could, and they're already in college, taking college courses so that when they get to college, they can excel and they feel the pressure. Um, and this is how our love can wander. This is how our love can be out of order. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus but he wanted to show them something, not out of sentimentality, because if Jesus was being sentimental, he'd be running there before, Jesus, before Lazarus would die. But Jesus is coming to Lazarus and he's saying, I've got something very important to show you, and that is that means that entails me to show up a little bit late for your schedule, and Matt Lazarus has to die, because I have something great to do that's never been done in the history of man, and that is to raise somebody from the dead. And this is so beautiful, this is so beautiful, because like, I love this old hymn, um, and I just have been revived in my heart to read some of these old hymns. There's a, there's a song, we do it here sometimes by Chris Tomlin. Um, 
And the words go like this, prone to wander, Lloyd, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. The only thing we can do is just give God our heart. We can't even tell our heart how to love. We can only look at Jesus Christ. And when we look at Jesus Christ and we look away, like remember the, 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 the children of Israel were in the, in the wilderness and they were being bitten by snakes and the only solution for them was to look away from the snake and their wounds and their dying relatives and their kids and to look at the brazen serpent on that pole which is a picture in John chapter three of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we look at that cross, you know, we were, we were with Ed and Steve and myself, we were eating some lunch this past, you know, this past week, we're in a, we're in a French bakery and we had, all of us had tears in our eyes because Ed was just sharing with us like, you know, the, the, the sacrifice and the, and the labor of Christ and it touched me so deeply. We walked up, people were kind of there, everybody's, it's a French bakery, everybody's speaking Spanish. I don't, I don't know how that works, but they're all, they're all kind of looking at, you know, with like three grown men, we got tears in our eyes. Why? Because when we look at Jesus Christ, when we see his sacrifice, we don't say, oh, that's what I got to do. It's not what Jesus would have done. It's what Jesus has done for you. It's what Jesus did for us. We look at it and it's, guys, it's going to take eternity in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, for us to gaze at the Lamb of God who is freshly slain for our sins. And that should make you feel guilty today. It should, it, should make, it should cause us to fall in love with the Savior. Like, wow, you know. Titus said it this in his book. Paul wrote to Titus and he said, we were sometimes foolish. Beasts, right? David said, I was a beast in your presence. You ever feel that way? Just a beast in the presence of God. Like you're just so irate and just, you're angry and I felt that way. And you look at Christ and he's saying, I love you unconditionally. And that's what makes us fall in love with Christ. You know why? I'm not gonna talk much longer, but Jesus is the filter for the glory of God. He's the human filter of how we see the glory of God. And I've used this illustration before, but I wanna say it again. If you were to look at the sun today, if you were out to go outside and look at the sun for more than a minute, the retinas in your eye would burn out, right? And that whole time you wouldn't understand, like you're just seeing this bright object and you, you have no idea what it is. It's, it's almost kind of abstract and it's bright and it's, it's just too powerful to look at and it's warm and it's very hot and it's just kind of like a, a rogue, dangerous, terrifying thing if we don't understand what the sun is. But yet if you have a filter, you have the right kind of filter, the right kind of, with the right kind of optics, you can look through that filter and you can look directly at the sun and you can see the beauty of the flames, you can see the beauty of the light, you can see the spectrum of all the colors in the rainbow, you can see everything, but you know what the key thing is? And your eye is not destroyed. The key is, is having the right filter. The Old Testament is about the glory of God, and God is communicating through the law and through his prophets, this is who I am, but the Israelites are not getting it because Jesus comes and there's this pharisaical, there's this whole religious system that nobody understands and G Jesus comes and nobody understands it's Jesus except for the lowly and the sinner and the publicans, people like you and I, and we see him. And Jesus is the filter that we see the glory of God through. Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God says, you cannot see my glory. Other men of the Bible said, I want to see your glory, God. And God's like, no way, I can't show you my glory because if I show you my glory, you're going to be vaporized in less than a second. Well, when Jesus comes on the scene and the, and the prophets, I mean, the, the apostles say that Jesus is the, 
is the express image, I think the King James says, of God.